So last week, uh, we jumped into this section called the household codes in Colossians, and we talked about husbands and wives. And the, my intention was to talk about husbands and wives last week, which we did, and thank you all for putting up with a really long sermon. Um, and I was going to do the rest of this section today, fathers and children and slaves and masters, but I realized that I was going to have another really long sermon, and I didn't want to do that to you. So I broke it up. So we're just going to talk about fathers and children this morning, and we're going to take slaves and masters next week. Uh, so for some context, uh, we talked about this last week. Um, this is a section, a genre of literature that Paul is employing called the Roman Household Code. And this was developed, we think, by Aristotle hundreds of years before Paul, and it was a way of describing the basic unit of the family, marriage, children, slaves, and, and we'll talk about slaves in depth next week, but household slaves were an integral part of the Roman family. And this family was run by the pater familias, the head of the household, the dad. And he had absolute life and death authority over his wife, over his children, over the slaves in the household. Greco-Roman codes like this were addressed to the men, to the people in power, and they instructed them on how they were to deal with the people under their care in the household. And so when we get to this household code in Colossians or a similar one in Ephesians, there's one in 1 Peter as well, we notice right away that it's different. This passage we said last week has a very Jesus-oriented flavor, right? Before this section in verse 17, we read, and whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And this is what this household code flows out of, that our whole life, Paul has been saying, should be shaped by who Jesus is. Jesus is kind of the foundational aspect of who we are as Christians, right? We're Christ's ones. And all through Colossians, we've been looking at how amazing Jesus is. And so Paul says, in the context of who Jesus is and what he's done for you and how he shaped you into a new person, this is how your home life should flow. Aristotle would say that household codes are for the purpose of an orderly society. The family is the building block of the empire. But Paul seems to say that they are an expression of allegiance to Christ. Paul talks about the Lord in three different places in this code. And he seems to be saying that Jesus is the Lord of the Christian household. And these codes are addressed to the whole church as, as they unite on a Sunday morning. And what's strange about these codes is that they are addressed to everyone in the family. A normal Roman household code would be addressed to the father and his role in doing all of the things that he was supposed to do to lead the family. And the idea that the wife or the children or the slaves would have agency at all would have been foreign to the Colossians. And so they would have immediately recognized the fact that Paul is talking to people in these household codes that normally do not get talked to, do not get acknowledged, do not get any kind of um, agency as people. One other thing to think about as we get into this is that some of the people in these household codes might not necessarily be Christians. 
Maybe there's a Christian wife who has a non-Christian husband. Maybe there's young adult children who have followed Jesus, but they have unbelieving parents. Maybe there's slaves in a home that have accepted the gospel and their masters haven't. And so all of these complex situations are in view, and Paul is bringing the ethics of the kingdom of God to bear on these situations. So last week, we talked about wives and husbands and how they relate to one another in the home, and today we're going to talk about children and parents. So first, we're going to talk about children. Look at verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So the first thing to keep in mind here is that Paul, and this is maybe this seems kind of like a no dust kind of thing to say, but Paul is talking to children. Paul is anticipating that when the church gathers, there will be children there. And one of the things we often do is we provide a space for our children to, to learn at a, at a level and to hear the gospel in a way that is more um, accessible to them, and, there's, and that's good, and there's nothing wrong with that. But, but even now, there are children in this room hearing the Word of God taught. And, and Paul is aware that in the church of Colossae, there's going to be children there, and he speaks to the kids. So kids, children. This is for you. This part of the Bible is written to you because you matter to God, right? The the people of God aren't just this club for adults that kids just have to put up with until they are old enough to be important. They're already important. The children of this church, there's the, the saying like, children are our future. No, children are our right now. The children of this church are members of this church in many ways. And they're not here just because they're not old enough to stay home. They're here because they're valuable to God and to the rest of us. And God believes, and, and, and Paul believes, kids, that you are smart enough to listen and to make choices that please the Lord. I looked it up this week, 47% of the people that, regu- that are regularly connected to Revelation Church are children. And like I said, we've made the decision to give the children of our church a learning experience that is uh, directed specifically at their level of development, whether that's our infants or our, our uh, kind of toddler group or our older kids. But Paul makes the assumption that children are primarily going to be formed by their parents. In Proverbs 1, we read, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and don't reject your mother's teaching, for they will be a garland of favor on your head and pendants around your neck." Paul says, children, obey your parents in everything. And why does Paul say that? He says, because this pleases the Lord, that God is is happy about it when you obey your parents. That he says that Jesus is the most important part of this letter. And Paul says that it pleases Jesus 
when you obey your parents. So, kids, how should you obey your parents? You should obey your parents, Paul says, in everything. How much is everything? It's a lot, isn't it? (laughs) All the things. And that's hard, isn't it? I know I'm a parent and I have kids who don't always want to obey me in everything. Sometimes the thing that that I am telling them to do doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Doesn't sound like the thing that they want to do. But Paul says, no, in, in everything, obey your parents. Why? Because it pleases the Lord. Now, there's a caveat there. There's, a, there's an exception to that. If mom and dad want you to do something that is sinful, is wrong, it doesn't please God that you would obey. And that as long as parents are teaching you to walk in a way that is good, you should listen to them. So, but when does this stop, right? We're, we're all children of someone, aren't we? I think, can we say that? And if your parents are still alive, do you need to obey them? See, in the Roman household, often several generations of people would live together in the same home, and they would all be under the authority of the father of the household. But our, our culture is very different than that, so how, how would we navigate that reality? Some might say that we should obey our parents until we turn 18, and then you don't have to anymore. Um, But 18 is kind of a really arbitrary age that our culture has created, isn't it? Like, you're an adult now. How many of you, when you turned 18, were like, oh, I feel different? Not me. You're not quite 18 yet. (laughs) Um, But then there's also 21 for some things, right? And then you can't rent a car until you're 25, so there's that. So, so there's like all of these arbitrary ages that we become adults, and, and, and so should we say that like, well, we should obey our parents until we become adults. That idea isn't really present in Paul's understanding. We could say you should obey your parents until you leave their house. Now, this is getting closer because Paul is probably talking to children who live with their parents. Maybe you've heard, as long as you live in my house... You follow my rules. So if, if you turn 18 and then move out, then you don't have to listen to your parents anymore, right? I have a different idea. Maybe this is unpopular for some of you 20-somethings. Um, I think you should obey your parents until you leave their family and start your own. This is a really maybe unpopular opinion. But under many circumstances, maybe most circumstances, I think unmarried children should be obedient to their parents, whether they live with them or not. And, and here's where I'm going to get this from. This is Genesis chapter 2. And the man, and the, uh, Adam is meeting Eve for the first time. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. 
This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. See, there's something about marriage where a man and a woman, they leave their family of of origin and they create a new family together. And they have obligations and responsibilities for one another and any children that they bring into the world that supersede, I believe, the directives of their parents. And this doesn't mean that you shouldn't honor your parents and cherish your parents for as long as you have them. You should but you have a different set of priorities when you start your own household. And this idea has lots of exceptions. I mean, maybe some of you are thinking about exceptions right now. Like, well, what if your parents are uh, not Christians? Or what if your parents are um, just con- are really, uh, really heavy-handed? Or uh, there's a lot of things that we could talk about. And, and that requires wisdom and godly counsel. But if you are an older child, and I know several of you are, that either live with your parents still or have moved out of your parents' home as a single adult, I would recommend that you start with a posture of obedience toward your parents. I've got a couple stories that I want to tell. Um, I'm sure I have not obeyed my parents many, many times as a young man. But there were a couple times that stand out in my mind when I think I got this right. And it's not because I'm so great. It's because I had wise, older counsel. When I was 18 years old, I was working at um, Qdoba Mexican Grill. And I was the assistant manager. And I was making, I don't know, $18,000 a year. It was so much money. And I was super excited about it. Um, I'd done some college. I hadn't gotten a degree or graduated or anything, and I didn't even care because I was, I was so rich and, I mean, it was so great working this job. And my parents felt like I should continue my education. They thought that I should attend, they, were, they had just moved to St. Regis, Montana, and they thought that I should attend the University of Montana in Missoula. And I thought this was a dumb idea because I wanted to keep my job, I wanted to stay in Coeur d'Alene with my friends. And my boss, a guy named Mel, who's the general manager of the store, he was probably 60 at the time, and he, we, we talked a lot about this, and I was frustrated because my, my mom and my dad, they just wanted me to do this thing, and I was like, I don't think this is the right thing for me, and I, I don't think this career path is right, and I don't think this school is right, and I don't want to do it, and I'm an adult now. And Mel said, you know what? I think Scripture teaches us that we should obey our parents. That even though you're an adult, even though you're 18, you should listen to mom and dad. You should honor them by being obedient to them, even if you think that it's the wrong move. And so on his counsel, I decided that I was going to listen to mom and dad. And so I moved to St. Regis with them, and I enrolled in the University of Montana, and A couple weeks in, well, the first week, I recognized that something had gone wrong with the planning and I was unable to get uh, into the classes I needed to get into to um, pursue the major that I had. And it was was a big fiasco. And and so I I made an appointment with the head of the department um, who had steered me wrong in orientation. And right before I was supposed to meet with him, he got in a car accident. 
and he was just out of commission for six or eight weeks. And so I was processing this with my parents, and my dad said, well, you know what we need to do? We need to pull you out of that school right now so that we can get our money back, which we did. And I didn't go to the University of Montana after all, and I moved back to Coeur d'Alene, and I got my job back at Qdoba. And I did other things, and I ended up graduating school in other ways. But I could have said, no, I'm an 18-year-old adult man, and I'm going to do what I want, and caused a big rift between me and my parents. And because of this godly counsel that Mel gave me, I was able to submit to their leadership over me and walk through that process And the result was what I thought was supposed to be anyway. And it didn't hurt the relationship. And I'm just really grateful that God organized that in that way for me. Here's another example. When um, the following year, when I was 19, I thought it'd be a good idea to get married. And so I went to my parents' house and I asked their permission if I could marry my girlfriend at the time. And I went into that conversation knowing that if they said no, I was going to listen to them. Because even though I was now 19 and way smarter than I was when I was 18, they had a little bit on me, didn't they? They had some experience. They kind of knew what was going on And I made the decision to trust them. And they ended up saying, yes, they gave their blessing. And then I I had to go talk to her dad, which was a different conversation. It was good too, but (laughs) scarier. But the thing is, like, if, if, and I know, I know some of you are in your early 20s and you're, um, you're single and you're, maybe you're living at home, maybe you're not, maybe you're in your teens and you're like, I'm an adult now and I have dreams and desires and wishes, I just highly encourage you to take this text seriously and listen to your parents. And that doesn't mean, that's not the same as when you're like five. When you're five and you're supposed to obey your parents, you just need to do what what they tell you to do. But when you're 18, when you're 19, don't obey blindly, debate with them, discuss with them. But when it comes down to it, I think it's wisdom to be willing to yield to their counsel if you can't agree. And to trust that the Lord is sovereign over your decisions and he will use your parents' wisdom to direct you. And when the time comes that you are out from under your parents' authority and you are um, leading a family of your own, Your parents, they still deserve honor. They still deserve respect. But maybe you're thinking like, well, what if if my parents aren't telling me to do something that's sinful, but they're just kind of authoritarian and unreasonable and they don't understand what I want and what my hopes and dreams are and they're really cramping my style? Well, that's when we go to the next verse. Chapter 3, verse 21 says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. So Paul switches his focus from children to fathers specifically, and we'll talk about that in a second. 
But we're gonna talk about both parents first. Parents, it's our job, and, and many of us in here have young children, it's our job to lead our children in a way that they receive as life-giving and not discouraging. We as parents have the primary responsibility of shaping the character of our kids. Paul uses this word exasperate, and he gets it from a text in Deuteronomy. Listen to this. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, that word rebellious is is the same as exasperate, rebellious son who does not obey his father or mother and doesn't listen to them even after they discipline him, his father and mother are to take hold of him and bring him to the elders of his city, to the gate of his hometown. They will say to the elders of his city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He doesn't obey us. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city will stone him to death. That's pretty heavy, huh? Yeah. So what do we see in this passage that that Paul is drawing on here? One, this is not a small child. This is not like an eight-year-old kid who's a glutton and a drunkard. This is an adult young man who has veered away from godly character so much that his parents have thrown up their hands. This man, this young man is basically a criminal, And while in Deuteronomy we see the seriousness of that, what we see in Colossians is that Paul is putting the responsibility for how a child grows up on the backs of the parents. And this isn't always the case. Good parents can can feasibly raise a child who ends up having poor character. There's all kinds of exceptions. But as a general rule, mom and dad... The kind of person your kids are going to be is on you. And this is where many Christian parents misunderstand the purpose of the church. Sometimes I hear things like, you know, if we send our kids to church, if we send our kids to youth group, the professionals will make sure they turn out good Christian adults. And that's just not true. The church is here to help. But it's our primarily responsibility as parents to raise our children in the faith. It's our job to make both following Jesus and living in our Christian home joyful for our kids, to not exasperate them so that they won't be discouraged in their home environment. Our kids live in a world where many of their peers have very different experiences of a home life. The grace of Jesus for us should pour out into our parenting. And our home should be grace-filled and safe for our kids to be sinners and to grow in Christ-likeness under their care, under our care. James Dunn comments about this passage this way. He says, to belong to such a strange sect a religion without a cult center, without priests and sacrifice, must have exposed the younger members of the Christian families of Colossae to some abuse from their fellows in the marketplace. Without strong parental encouragement, they could easily become discouraged. The psychological sensitivity displayed here is remarkably modern. What he says is that for the Colossian Christians, they've, they've taken their kids out of everything that's normal. 
If you're a normal kid growing up in the Roman Empire, your family participated in the pagan worship and you went to the temples and you offered sacrifices and there was this whole thing that you did and now your family's a Christian and you hang out with other kids and maybe you get mocked because you don't worship the gods anymore because you meet in somebody's home under the cover of darkness and it's super weird. And we live in a different world today, but we live in a very similar world. Many, many children do not have home lives that reflect the character of Christ. And, and, and if your kids are out in the world getting to know other kids, they're going to run into that tension. And mom and dad, it's on you to create a space at home where your kids feel loved and cherished and actually enjoy the fact that they're a part of the community of faith. So how do we do this? Just a couple practical things. The first, first thing I want to say is, is, mom and dad, raise your kids as Christians. The parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 6 says, Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Sometimes I hear parents say that like they're, they're kind of raising their kids as like a blank slate. They don't want to import their values on them. That, that they want to just like raise them up in a way so that they can experience all of the philosophies of the world and come to their own decision. And on the surface, that sounds really um, modern and, and, and progressive and, and, and freeing. But you wouldn't ever do that with like physical danger like, I remember growing up, my, um, my dad's really good about making sure that people are safe. It's one of his things, and it's one of the things I love about him. And I grew up hearing all the time about that little, that little green circle guy with his tongue sticking out. You know that label for poison? Like, what do you do when you see that label? You don't touch it. That's right. Like every four or five weeks, I probably got a little like poison talk. What do, you, what do you do if somebody drives up in a van and opens it up and says, hey, you want some candy? I don't go there. I don't go with that person. I run away. Yes, over and over and over and over again. And I've never drank poison and I've never been kidnapped. So it worked. But here's the thing. There are spiritual dangers out in the world that are much more dangerous than bleach under the kitchen counter. And we need to train our children to discern between the good and the bad. So parents, take every step that you can to raise your children as Christians. Secondly, create a Christian home. And this is, this is something, again, that, that we, we struggle with sometimes. Like the, the gears don't mesh very well. We're, we're attending the gathering. Maybe we're, we're a part of a community group and we have these broadly Christian ideas, but when it comes to the everyday in our home, we don't really know what to do. But I think as parents, we're called to make the gospel a part of the air in our home. Read the scriptures with your kids. Pray with them. Lead them in song. Talk about the faith whenever you can create an opportunity. 
Robert Withnow says, effective religious socialization comes about through embedded practices. That is, through specific, deliberate religious activities that are firmly intertwined with the daily habits of family routines, of eating and sleeping, of having conversations, of adorning the spaces in which people live, of celebrating the holidays, and of being part of a community. Compared with these practices, the formal teaching of religious leaders often pale in significance. If, if, the, if the baseline for your rearing of your children in the faith is like, well, we let them go to Sunday school, that's great. And I'm confident that what they're doing in Sunday school is really good. But you have an opportunity every single day to insert the goodness and grace of God into common everyday activities. As you pray together, as you read the Bible together, as you talk about your day and how to connect that to the faith. And this is something, honestly, that is really easy to just ignore. And I've talked with many of you about, how, about the struggle to have some kind of rhythm of Christian devotion in your homes. And I want to I plug a book I've given, I've given this away to many of you, but this is called Family Worship by Donald Whitney. And it's an excellent, like, tiny little book about how to implement um, patterns and rhythms of Christian worship in your home. And I have two copies that I will give away if anybody wants them. And then there's another book that is excellent called Liturgy, Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tish Harrison Warren. And I want to read a quote from this. She says, the kind of spiritual life and disciplines needed to sustain the Christian life are quiet, repetitive, and ordinary. I often want to skip the boring daily stuff to get to the thrill of an edgy faith, but it's the dailiness of the Christian faith, the making the bed, the doing the dishes, the praying for our enemies, the reading the Bible, the quiet, the small, that God's transformation takes root and grows. Mom and dad, you have so many opportunities to bring Jesus into the conversation with your kids every single day. And it's up to us to take advantage of those opportunities. The third thing that I want to say is that we should be parents that model the gospel to our kids. A common complaint from adults is that trusting the goodness of a heavenly father is difficult because we have not had an experience of trust with an earthly father. For many of us, we come to understand for the first time the love of a father when we receive the love of God. But for some some of us, it's a barrier to understanding the love of God. Parents, we should be focusing on creating a space for kids to experience God's unconditional love through us. N.T. Wright says it this way, the parent's duty is in effect to live out the gospel to the child. That is to assure their children that they are loved and accepted and valued for who they are, not for who they ought to be, should have been, or might, if only they would try a little harder, become. It's really easy to forget this. It's really easy to, to turn our children into projects 
be disappointed at them when they don't live up to our expectations for them. And sometimes that's an issue of sin and it needs to be corrected, but many times it's just our own projecting our failures and shames onto our kids. We need to be aware of that and bring grace and kindness into our homes. And also, parents, this has been so transformational for us. Let your kids see your sin and your repentance. Because you are going to lose your temper with your spouse. You are going to lose your temper with your kids. You are going to do things that you regret and are ashamed of. You're going to hit your thumb with a hammer and say something inappropriate. There are multiple things that you are going to do that your kids are going to see. And you have an opportunity to demonstrate the grace of God by acknowledging those sins and repenting for them in a way that your kids can see. And that will shape their hearts in profound ways. And fourthly, and this, this kind of spins back up to talking about adult kids, is give them freedom as they grow. Proverbs 22.6 says, Start a youth out on his way, and when he grows old, he will not depart from it. There's an assumption throughout all the scriptures that we are raising kids to make their own decisions, right? We, we don't want our kids to live in our basement their entire life. We want them to move out, to be adults, to, to act in the world on their own. And as, in order to do that, as they grow, they need to be given the opportunity to fail, to choose poorly, to learn from their mistakes. And it's up to us to create an environment in which when they screw up, because they will, they will run to us and not from us. This is a question that is consistently on my mind as I have uh, a teenage daughter and and one who's going to be a teenager any day now. (laughs) Um, Do they they trust me with with their stuff? Are they going to be people that get into trouble and because, oh, we can't let dad find out because he would be disappointed in the fact that I did this thing, I have to hide it from him. I hope that's not the case. I hope that Joanna and I have created an environment in our home that whatever happens in our kids' lives, we are the first people that they turn to and not the people that they hide from. This is so beautifully illustrated in Jesus' story of the prodigal son. In the prodigal, we won't read it all, but in the prodigal son story, the, the younger brother comes to his dad and says, hey, dad, I want my inheritance now. I know I'm supposed to wait till you die, but I don't care. I want it now. And that's a really dumb idea. It was a really bad decision. But the father says, okay, son, if that's what you want, I'll let you do that. And then he goes away and he, he, he squanders his family's wealth on immoral living. And at the end of the story, he finally decides, you know what? The servants in my father's house are better off than I am. I will go back home and I will beg forgiveness and I will just ask to be a servant in my father's house. And we read in Luke 15, so he got up and went to his father, but while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. And it's, that's such a beautiful picture of the love of God. And yet sometimes we act as parents like, 
that's not exactly how we should be with our actual children. If that's who God is towards us, how much more should we be filled with grace and kindness to our kids, especially when they make poor choices? But it is Father's Day, so let's talk specifically about dads. This passage is applicable to both mothers and fathers, but Paul makes a distinction here. He says parents in verse 20, and he says fathers in verse 21. Scott McKnight comments, the father had authority in the Roman and Jewish world, and the father could make or break his children's future. Fathers had at the time a unique responsibility for raising children, and I would argue that fathers have a unique responsibility for raising children today. Fathers play an incredibly special role in the development of children, and that is a role that, for some reason, is really underemphasized in our culture. One in six children in the U.S. are raised without a father. And so, this is such a common reality that we have just normalized it, right? It's, it often seems weird when you watch television or a movie and the setting is a, is a two-parent family that like all love each other. That's a really weird thing. It's much more likely that you've got a show with kids that are being raised by a single mom or some other family situation because a stable two-parent family with a mom and dad that both love their children seems to be rare. And while we need to acknowledge single moms and the hard work that they do, and we need to be a, a church community that supports single women and their parenting, we should not be people that normalize a home without a father. Boys that do not grow up with a father are twice as likely to be incarcerated by age 30. Boys with fathers in their home graduate college at higher rates. They're less likely to suffer failure to launch. They're less likely to live in the parents' basement for the rest of their lives. I was reading uh, this last week about the crazy thing with the, the militiamen in the U-Haul that happened a couple weeks ago. A story about one of the men who was caught in that U-Haul and how he had just struggled to find his way in his life after his father left the home and he found a new family in this militia. See, boys overall learn how to be good men from their fathers. But what about girls? See, girls may learn how to be good women from their mothers, but they learn about what qualities to look for in men from their fathers. So dads, your daughters will look at the way that you treat them and their mother in order to make decisions on how to relate to other young men. Odds are, dads, your daughter will marry a man like you. Is that terrifying? <laughs> Glad you're with us this morning, Nora. <laughs> See, the reality is we who are fathers 
have an opportunity to shape our children in a way that is totally unique to our role as fathers. Your kids are, are going to have lots of great coworkers, lots of great bosses, lots of great teachers, lots of good friends, but they only get one father. It's an important role that we should take seriously. And the thing is, is those of us who have committed ourselves by the grace of God to being good fathers to our own kids, we can also be good fathers to those who do not have fathers. And this is maybe, maybe a call to some of you older men in the room. Maybe your kids are grown. You're not, you're not fathering like you used to. You can find a young person that needs a father figure and mentor them and pour into them. Because as weird as it may sound, young people want older people in their lives. Fathers, this is a gift that we've been given to feel the love of our Heavenly Father for us and share that love with our children. And the, the thing is, for those of you that are young fathers, I don't, I don't think we feel prepared for this. I don't feel like we think we're ready for this. When we're, when we're older, we'll be prepared to be good role models and spiritual leaders. But young fathers, this is your calling, whether you're 21 or 35 or whatever. I just turned 40. And I remember my dad being 40, and he seemed so smart and so with it and so put together. And I think he was. But now that I'm 40, like, I don't feel any of those things. I feel like I'm just barely figuring it out. And so, so dads, we'll continue to make mistakes as we raise our kids. We'll continue to feel inadequate, but we need to recognize that this is a special role that we've been given to do an amazing work in the hearts of our children that no one else gets to do. So as we close, let's, let's zoom out a little bit. What's, what's the point of this relationship, children and fathers? Why is this important? This is, turns out, the primary way that God displays himself to us is by this kind of relationship, isn't it? God is a father and God is a son. He didn't, he didn't just like randomly choose these relationships. It matters to him that he communicates who he is in a certain way. And what he's chosen to do is use the picture of the father and the son. And he interacts with himself in both of these roles. And when we inhabit those roles well, we are pictures to one another and the rest of the world of what God is like. So one more time, children, think about this. Jesus is a son. Hebrews 5 says, although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Jesus was always the eternal son of God, but he gladly submitted himself to his father when he became a human being. 
He went to the cross and he suffered and he died to save us from sin and death in obedience to his father. There was even a point in time in the Garden of Gethsemane where, where he wasn't sure about it. God, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, I wanna do that. But not my will, your will be done. And, and those of us we are, who are children, we get to practice what it's like to be like Jesus in one small way by being obedient to our parents. Jesus experienced what we all experience as children, the need to trust someone else to have our best interests at heart and to obey them for our own good. As children, we get to be a model of Jesus. And then fathers and more broadly parents, Jesus says in Matthew 7, who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? See, Jesus uses this example of earthly fathers who have this instinct to just love their kids and give good things to their kids and see their kids thrive. And if that's the case for those of us that are born sinful, how much more does God care about us as our heavenly father? Jesus acknowledges the impulse that we have as parents to give good gifts to our kids. But he says God's impulse to give good gifts is so much greater than that. God cares for us because he is our father. And as fathers and mothers, we get to be a model of the kind of love that God the Father has for his people. So as we continue to work our way through the household codes in Colossians, we're reminded that the Christian household should be radically reshaped by Christ. That we are a new people with new priorities and new relationships and a new ethic. And that changes the way that we live both as children and as parents. And our family roles are both an expression of God's will for us as people and an example of the kind of relationship that we have with God, our Heavenly Father. So let's do some questions. Let's see what this one says. Whoa. Let's see. How do you encourage a young child that seems completely disinterested in God, doesn't want to pray with you and has no desire to read the Bible with you because it doesn't seem fun to them? Hmm. Yeah, that's hard. I, I mean, I, I would say probably like sitting them down and making them do it isn't helpful because um, that's probably not going to seem fun either. Well, I guess my first question would be, is it fun for you as a parent? Do you relish your time with the Lord? Do you enjoy your prayer life? Is, 
Is reading God's Word exciting to you? And it, I mean, depending on how young this child is, there's a certain point where kids don't want to be like their parents anymore, but for a while they really do. And you have a window in which um, they see you as a role model and want to um, be the kind of person that you are. So I guess that would be my first question is what's that relationship like in other ways? Is your, is your child eager to be like you when you're out mowing the lawn or when you're cooking dinner? They're just not interested in studying the scriptures and praying? Or are they just completely disinterested in who you are? And additionally, I, I, there's a lot of ways to make um, study of scripture fun. Um, we... Uh, And again, this depends on the age of the child, but we love the What's in the Bible videos at our house. It's part of what's what we use in the children's ministry curriculum as well. Um, But it's songs and puppets and and stories, and they're short and easy to understand, but they're theologically rich. Um, and, And maybe instead of encouraging your children to come to where you are in your spiritual disciplines, why don't you create some spiritual disciplines that they would be interested in and join them in that. Uh, I've found that to be really fruitful in our life. But I think most, most of all, I just think we pray, right? A child's heart is still ultimately the Lord's to do with. And um, we can model, we can encourage, um, but then we pray to... Pray that the Lord would kind of shine a light there. And I would also say, um, get together with other families who have similar age kids and just create some opportunities for the kids to do those things together. Uh, peer pressure isn't always a bad thing. Uh, sometimes a child can come alive when they recognize that their peers are excited about something that they're not excited about. And they can um, get into the scriptures that way. Uh, this, this last question says, um, says, never mind, but I'm going to read it anyway. <laughs> it says, what if you come from a broken family? Parents are divorced at an early age. Yeah, huge population of people are living in um, separated or divorced families. And the situation becomes infinitely more complex, right? When maybe you have kids that are in two different homes part-time, maybe you have parents that have different ideas of what it looks like to follow Jesus, or maybe one parent doesn't want to have anything to do with the gospel. And if you are if you are a child in that environment and you are committed to following Christ, um, you still have the opportunity to listen to, honor, and even obey your parents. Uh, Even a non-Christian parent who maybe doesn't have the same um, worldview as you do, but the vast majority of their decisions for you in most cases are for your good. 
and you have the opportunity whenever you can to submit to their authority. One of the things that um, would have been a reality in Colossae, I mentioned this at the beginning, is that it was possible to be a child who was a follower of Christ and have parents that weren't. And it seems as though Paul is aware of the idea, and he says this in other places, of just the reputation of Christians in the community. And if you are a, maybe you are a teenager or a young adult who is following Jesus and you are pushing back against the authority of a non-Christian parent, what they see is, oh, you're a Christian and this is how Christians behave. They don't honor their parents. They don't love their parents. And I think Paul's concern would be in every way possible keep that relationship with your parents intact so that when the time comes that you have to make a decision to follow Christ and not your parents, that that's an exception to a pattern of faithful obedience and honor that you have set out um, to accomplish. Because we never want to be people that are known as... mean or riotous or um, um, yeah, just poor citizens, poor family members. That should not be the, the reputation of the Christian. The Christian should, in every relational context that they have, seek to bring peace and unity to that setting because there will come a time where we have to choose to follow Christ instead of that other authority, uh, and that's a, that's a social capital that we want to have. And I don't know if that's exactly the question from that perspective, but I would try to keep that in mind if that's where you're at, that take every opportunity to obey your parents, to honor your parents, because when the time comes that you have to say, like, I know I'm not going to do that. I have to follow Jesus. They will know that you're making an exception um, to a, a pattern that you have shown of honor. All right, good questions. We're going to take communion. And we, we take communion every week, and we remember the Lord's death for our sins on the cross. And we do that as a family, right? God's new family. We've all been adopted as children into the family of God. And He is our Heavenly Father. And so, as we come to the table and take the bread and the juice or the wine, just take a moment to see and hear all of the people moving around this room and that we are um, bound together by these family relationships that, that even exceed our natural families. Take the bread and the cup. Um, back to your seat with you, and, and um, you can take communion when you are ready. As we sing together, if, if you want to pray, uh, you can sit or stand or come kneel at the prayer rugs. Um, just make the space um, useful to you as you worship. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur podcast. 
Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.